1415, the year 1415 in Azincourt, France, the English won a major victory in the Hundred Years' War against a much larger French force. And afterward, Henry V, the same Henry V as the one in Shakespeare's play, he made his army kneel and sing Psalm 115. Right there on the battlefield. The day had started with Henry's St. Crispin's Day speech, having the We Merry Band of Brothers lined in it. The day ended with an army singing Psalm 115. Later in English history, William Wilberforce, the English Christian reformer, also meditated on Psalm 115, verse 1, when his abolition bill passed the Parliament in 1807, banning the the sale and the transport of slaves. He turned to this text. So this text, Psalm 115, and examples could be multiplied here, it echoes down through the ages, and it's been especially dear to the people of God when they are outnumbered or besieged. When we face a great battle, when the odds are long, this has been a psalm of the church. And so we'll make five points. They're there on the last page of the bulletin. God the idols, trust, blessing, and praise. First, God. The psalm starts out with a double negative, a double negation for emphasis. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But rather, by contrast, to your name be the glory, or to your name give or demonstrate glory. It's both a renunciation of human pride and boasting, of our perpetual tendency to want to be gods or to usurp the place of God. And at the same time, it ascribes glory to God. And and more importantly, it is calling upon the Lord to act on his own behalf, to glorify his own name. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name, give glory is probably the best translation. God's name is glorious because God's name is God. And it is God in his unmeasured perfection. His splendor and his radiance. And here, the accent in the text is on God acting, God moving to vindicate or to manifest his glorious name through, the text says, his love and his faithfulness. Now, we've seen this throughout the Psalms. It's necessary for us, very important for us as people who pray, to make God the responsible actor for the situations we confront. 
We are not primarily the first responsible actor in the, the majority of things we pray about. We have to put God in charge of the situation, and particularly we're calling upon him to magnify, to defend, and to glorify his own name. After all, it's his reputation. It's his fame, not ours, that's at stake. And here, the psalmist, he wants God to show his love and his faithfulness. These are both covenant words. These are words which for a Hebrew would evoke not just general attributes of love and faithfulness. The word for love is hased. It means covenant love. It's shorthand for the covenant, really. And the word for faithfulness is the same as the word for truth. So the psalmist is saying something like this. Glorify your name through your covenant love, your truth, your fidelity. So we're asking God here. We're saying to God, act in terms of your covenant, your love and your truth, and thus manifest your glory. Defend, in other words, your own name. And how does God defend his own name? He acts in terms of his holy covenant. It is, I think, vitally important that we learn to pray this way. For one thing, it liberates us from the crushing burden of having to be responsible for all the situations we're praying about. No human being can do that. Nor are we called to do that. So we, we, if we don't adopt this basic posture, this vocabulary, our prayers end up getting cut off from the covenant and from the glory of God's name. And they just become a sort of laundry list, a grab bag. And we don't want to be praying in a way that's cut off from the covenant. The covenant is not just a thing Reformed folk like to say. Though there are people like that. The covenant is the shape of our relationship with God. So the relationship that we have with God, that God enters into with us, it has form. It has shape. It has a pattern. It's not sort of an amorphous thing. And the shape of our relationship with God is the covenant, and that should be shaping our prayers. And this is why the Psalms and the vocabulary of the Psalms are so helpful to us. So, verse 2 here, Psalm 115, verse 2, gives us some background, however faint, as to what prompted the call for God to act in verse 1. Why do the nations say, where is their God? So we can, we can deduce this. The nations are mocking They're wondering about the location and probably the ability to act of Israel's God. Israel's God is an enigma in the ancient world because he's imageless, infinite, and invisible. And I know that's in your outline, at least I think it is, so I'll give it to you again. He's imageless, infinite, and invisible. He's not represented under some material form, even though he has a tabernacle, a dwelling place. 
He's not represented under material form. And the, and the first two commandments of the Decalogue set forth God's transcendent uniqueness. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other God before me. Or you shall have no idols or no images before my face. And the second commandment makes this explicit. You shall not make for yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. These are the first two commandments because men are bent toward making stuff and then calling it God or identifying with God and worshiping it. Israel's God then is imageless. He's unable to be captured or localized. When the, uh, when the Roman general Pompey gained control of Israel, of Jerusalem, in like 60-something B.C., and he entered the temple, he was astonished that in the holy place, there was no image, no icon of Israel's God, no picture of him. So, this is something of a taunting theological question to Israel in the psalm. Just where is your God? That's what the nations are saying. If he has no image. And the implication, of course, is that he's nowhere. And thus he's unable to come to Israel's aid. And so the psalmist answers decisively in verse 3. Our God as opposed to the local visible gods of the nations. Our God is in heaven. Now this is not meant, this is not meant to locate God in some place or some space called heaven, as if heaven was a container in which God dwells. This is a kind of theological shorthand. It means God's not located. Our God is not located in space. He's transcendent, sovereign over all space. After all, this very same psalm, verse 15, is going to say that he's the maker of heaven and earth. Verse 16 says that the highest heavens belong to him. So God doesn't fit in some space called heaven. He's the maker of heaven. The highest heavens belong to him. He doesn't belong to them. So when the psalmist says, our God is in heaven, it's a statement that our God is infinite and invisible, ineffably above and over all. Being in heaven, he can be everywhere. And as such, this God does whatever pleases him. Only this kind of God can do whatever pleases him. He's sovereign, free, unconstrained in his purposes, the psalmist says. He's unthwarted. Unthwartable. He does whatever he wants to do. He makes everything work according to the counsel of his eternal will. He does whatever pleases him. And he does it effortlessly. 
He's not locked in some sort of mortal combat. He can wipe the gods of the nations away with the back of his hand as he did in Egypt. No council formed against this one can stand. So, notice this in the text. Note that the word does, he does whatever pleases him. That's the same root word as the word for makes or fashions. So the psalmist is is engaged in a bit of a biting pun here. In sovereign freedom, God makes or he fashions whatever he desires, is what he's saying. And this will be important as the psalm proceeds. You know, sometimes when we hear or we speak of the transcendence of God, his infinite exalted status above space and time, it can seem like it distances him from us. And in a certain sense it does. But it's his infinite perfection over and separated from all space which makes him the only one who can act decisively in space for his people. No image means powerfully present. Invisible means invincible. You can have, people want this, right? You can have a domesticated, friendly, accessible, local deity. But their very manageable natures themselves mean they're impotent. And so the psalmist has actually answered quite decisively when he says, these two things. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And this brings us to the second point, idols. This is, we we get here in verses 4 through 8, you get this fairly standard prophetic critique of the gods, of the idols of the nations. And it's satirical. It's biting. It's sarcastic. We cannot think that satire and biting sarcasm have no place in the Christian life. I can give you three reasons you can't think that. One is called the Psalms. Another one's called the Prophets. And the third one is called Jesus. Now we have to pick our targets carefully. We should only ridicule ridiculous things. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. It turns out, he's going to say, that when the nations come to Israel in distress, when it appears that God has abandoned us, and they say, where is your God? It's not that they have no God. It's that they have new gods. So look at verse 4. But their idols, there's our God God in verse 3, their idols in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold. And that's the best case. That's the highest quality materials. The finest, most valuable substances on earth are still creaturely made things. You know, and the, and the book of Proverbs, for example, exhorts us. It says that we should seek wisdom above silver and gold. For the value of wisdom, Solomon says, is far above the value of rubies. Right? So, so you have a silver and gold portfolio. I mean, if you don't, every other commercial on cable news can show you how to get one. 
They're easy to acquire. You have some. Fine. Let your wisdom portfolio be infinitely more rich, more diverse. The gods of the nations are silver and gold. Perhaps lovely pieces of art, but they are made, the text says, by human hands. Again, made is playing off does. Our God does or makes whatever he pleases. Their their gods are made by human hands. Our God made the heavens and the earth. Their gods are made out of created substances. How ridiculous is that, the psalmist is saying. If you want to see, if you want to see the folly of this mocked, and I mean mocked with extended glee, then read Isaiah 44. Let me summarize just a portion. He speaks of them as cutting down trees. So they cut down a tree. Then the carpenter measures it with his line. He works it with his chisel and compass. He shapes it into the form of a man so that it can be put in a shrine. Half the wood he burns in a fire to keep warm. This is Isaiah now. Ah, I am warm, he says. See the fire? And some of the fire he uses to bake bread and roast meat. And from the rest he makes a god and bows down to worship it and says, Save me. You are my god. He can't even bring himself to say, Isaiah says, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? That's Isaiah. His class is called the Satire of Icons 101. So, back to Psalm 115. What you get next is a list. A list of seven. The number of perfection. Seven features... Seven corresponding impotencies of idols. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they can't see. Ears, they can't hear. Noses, they can't smell. Hands, they can't feel. Feet, they can't walk. Throats, which they cannot get any breath into or out of. The point is, they're perfect in their imperfection. They're almighty in their impotence. Of course... This all seems ancient and far away from us. We wouldn't do this with all of our toys. We're beyond this kind of crude worshiping of technology and gadgets. At least we think that. Our stuff never controls our time and our allegiances. It never seduces us, apparently. It never poses any threat. It's just stuff. It just sits over there and behaves. The problem, of course, still exists. It doesn't go away because idols have changed their form. Our, our hearts, in Calvin's famous phrase, are idol factories. We're perpetually manufacturing the things. That's why the first two commandments are the first two commandments. And so the things we make, they perpetually move from being used and enjoyed to being addictive, disordering influences on our desires. That's what happens. Stuff was dangerous then. Stuff is dangerous now. 
We have, in fact, if anything, more nifty and seductive potential idols, I would say. Some of ours can, in fact, see. And they talk back to us. And it's good to have a text like Psalm 115 remind us of their impotence, of their infinite distance from the glory of our God in the heavens, even if they have many useful functions. You know, Augustine, St. Augustine famously said, we're to use things, use things, but we're to love God and people. We're not against art or technology. Quite the opposite, actually. But we do have to guard against drooling over and being seduced by and loving things. It's a form of worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator. And so it's good for us to satirize these things. Say it's the year 2500. 2500, and you have the new iPhone. It's the iPhone 666. (laughs) What's the best it could do? Have you played this scenario out? Well, here's what I think the best it could do is. It could read your mind. Know you want Chinese food. Know your exact order. Have it assembled somewhere. Deliver it at the speed of light so that it instantly appears on your lap as you think it. To which I say, so what? That's it? I mean, it can't create the heavens and the earth. It can't atone for your sins. It can't raise the dead. It won't vindicate the martyrs. It's not going to empty any cemeteries or rectify any injustices. It's not going to strip the demonic powers. It's not going to usher in the new creation. It can't even make you wise. That's it. That's all you can do is get me my Chinese food instantaneously. It's good to satirize these things. It's good to remember that these things can't do the things that we need done as human beings. What do we need done? We need resurrection from the dead and immortality. The other things are just pleasurable to play with. So the capstone of this critique of the idols is in verse 8. Those who make them will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. We've said often from this pulpit, you become like what you worship. But you become like what is fascinating to you. What what is absorbing you, you actually begin to reflect it in your own sort of way. You become like what you worship. That comes from, among other places, it comes right from this text, which tells us you are becoming like something. Worship is not just rendering to God what is due. Though it is that, it is that. And it's not just a kind of response. God has done this and we respond with worship. Though it is that. Worship is formation. It's forming you. This is the tricky stuff about stuff. You think you're manipulating stuff, stuff's manipulating you. And when we're here, we're being fashioned and formed. We become like what we worship. The tragedy here is that we are the living images of God. You are an icon of God. 
And here, human beings are being bent into the degraded images of the things they worship. Those who make them and those who trust them, the text says, become like them. Right? There's a reason. I worked in the technical world for a long time. There's a reason that techno geeks are often, not always, but often, socially maladjusted. Right? They pick up, like we all do with our certain avocations, they pick up the robotic, impersonal, machine-like qualities of the stuff they love to hang around. It's not difficult to diagnose the issue here. If you worship gadgets rather than just use them, you become dehumanized. You become like what you worship. Whether a person's an atheist or not, we are becoming like the things we worship. And in this case, in the text here, the leading idea that the psalmist has is that the idolater becomes silent and impotent and useless and unable to live, unable to enact and fulfill their natures as they come from the hand of the maker of heaven and earth. So the human situation is quite ironic. We are icons, images of God, and then we make other images and worship them. So the third point is trust. Here, here the, 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 the psalmist is picking up the word uh, trust in verse 8. All who trust idols will become like them. But Israel, you, you are to trust the Lord. So there's a kind of sharp contrast here, isn't there? There are only two kinds of people in the world. Worshippers, lovers, those who magnify and bless the God of Israel, and idolaters. There's really no third option. You're being formed into one of those kinds of people. One cannot have two controlling allegiances. Jesus said this. You cannot worship God and mammon. You cannot worship God and gadgets. You cannot worship God and gadgets. So the nations are mocking, and after the psalmist has mocked back a little bit, because he does mock back a little bit here, he calls for us to trust. Right? We live in a time where the faith is often mocked. We have to trust. It's a threefold call. You'll notice that in the text that the, the voice changes to the third person. So this was probably used responsively in a liturgy. All Israelites, including all the Aaronic priests and all who fear the Lord, are called to trust the Lord in the face of derision. Based of your atheist brother-in-law who wants to know, where is your God? You're called to trust. And we trust the Lord when the odds are long, when it's an uphill battle, as the church has traditionally done, because he's our help and our shield. Offensive help, defensive shield. Contrary to the idols who can offer no assistance, this God helps his image bearers. He helps his human icons, you and me. In a sense here, we lay everything on the line. You're called, in a sense, to lay everything on the line every day. To say, I'm not going to trust these idols. I'm going to trust the living God. My God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. The nations are mocking. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to confess that he can help me 
that he can shield me, that he can defend me, that he is the living God, and I'm going to make it his business to vindicate the glory of his name. So the fourth point then is blessing. The Lord's blessings invoked five times in the latter half of the psalm. Verse 12, the Lord remembers us and will bless us. Remembering, we've seen this before too, remembering is a covenant word. It means God's acting in terms of his covenant. He's mindful of us because he's covenanted himself to us. Right? This is why you can say to God, this is your business. This is your name. This is your covenant. These are your promises. And he's going to bless the whole house of God. Small and great alike, the text says. And in verse 14, you actually get a prayer for blessing. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. You know, there's something instructive here. The, 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 the psalmist appeals to a promise. The Lord has covenanted to himself, his people. He has covenanted himself to us. And therefore, he will bless us. Right? There's this promise. It's rooted in the covenant. But then he prays for the blessing. May the Lord cause you to flourish. Right? You, you, you should confess the promise, make God own the promise, and then pray for the thing that God has promised. You should move from the Lord will bless us to may the Lord bless us. So we may be mocked. We may be derided. We may be facing long odds. But the text is saying you and the church have this glorious, flourishing future. And that future embraces our offspring. And this prayer here appeals to the Lord, who's the maker of heaven and earth. Just from creation alone, we know that God has the power to bless us. Because we, we witness his goodness and power. And so, here's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying to the nations, look, Israel's beleaguered now. The odds against us are long. The nations are mocking. It looks like our God is nowhere. But let me tell you this. The original intentions for creation will not be thwarted. And the original intentions for the people of God will not be thwarted. The original creation came with a benediction. Notice the language here which evokes Genesis 1 and 2. The Lord will bless us. He will bless you and your offspring. God blessed. He the original creation came with a benediction. He blessed Adam and Eve. He commanded them to multiply. And he, the maker of heaven and earth, gave them the earth to rule, to enjoy. So now he is saying the covenant promises to Abraham, to the people of God, they still stand. They still stand. God promised three things to Abraham, really. Renewing the original promises in Genesis. He promised him land, seed, and a blessing. You'll notice they're all three present. Land, seed, and a blessing in this text. God will bless us. Blessing. He will bless our offspring. Seed. He will grow the church. Because he's the maker of heaven and earth. The land. Finally. Praise. Verse 16. The highest heavens belong to the Lord. But the earth he's given to mankind. He's not resigned his sovereignty over the land, but he's granted it as a gift to man. And since the dead go down to silence, you know, he, he uses this language here, the dead go down to silence, because he's trying to say they eventually end up like the idols they worship. 
Since that's the end, what are we to do while there's breath in our lungs? Well, it's principally one thing, and it's what the text calls us to do. It's very simple what Psalm 115 is calling us to. It's calling us to extol the Lord, to confess that our God is in the heavens, that he does whatever pleases him. Both now, the text says, and forevermore. You are the community, the seed of Abraham, called to enduring praise, especially now. Notice the now part. Because the now in Psalm 115 is the hour when the odds are long. It's the hour of discouragement and despair. Now and forevermore, you're called to praise the Lord. You're an icon. Think of yourself as an icon of God. And you must speak of. You cannot be silent. You're a speaking icon. You're an image who does speak and who does see and who does hear. Whose hands do feel. And you are called to speak and declare the praise of the one you image. Praise, in this sense, is one of the most fitting things human beings can do. It's a way of saying we are image bearers of the Creator God. But also, in this context, praise is a kind of polemic, it's an answer to the nations. So the nations are asking, Where is your God? And by extolling God, notice the way the psalm ends. By extolling God, we give glory to his name for his love and faithfulness. And then what's, what's happening then? It's much like the psalmist does in the middle of the psalm. He announces the promise, and then he says, may the Lord bless you. He, he announces the promise. He moves to prayer. At the beginning, he calls forth the Lord to glorify his name. And at the end, we signal, we start, we lead in the glorification of the name which we prayed for in verse 1. So again, pray, then do the thing you prayed for. So you pray for God to glorify his name, and then you glorify it. You start it. And we do that. We do that by confessing or extolling the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. All things visible and invisible. Amen.